Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Aaron Cameron. With me, of course, is Adam Pawatic. We are recording live at the Canadian Apartment Investment Conference. We are recording the podcast, and we are also doing a speaker video series uh, as part of our partnership with the Canadian Real Estate Forums. We, of course, want to thank Yardy for sponsoring this podcast. Don't forget, stay tuned. Of course, Aaron and I will do our after show to share our thoughts on the episode. Our guest is Salima Raji, who is the Senior Vice President of Development at CreateTO. What is CreateTO? I have no idea. We're going to find out. So hold on. Salima, thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. Salima, we really like to start with background of people and kind of personalize a little bit. Why do we care what you have to say? So maybe just talk about your background and how you ended up at CreateTO and your background in, in real estate. I'm actually born and raised out west in Vancouver and had come out to Toronto after undergrad at UBC and worked in the art sector for a number of years. It was great. I was in my 20s and I got paid to go to concerts and watch movies and, and do lots of fun things, but realized I wanted more. Didn't quite know where that was going to be and ended up at Rotman where there was a super popular class taught by Mitchell Goldhar. It just made sense to me. It was a real estate development class. I asked him for a job. He hired me. Spent about five years there. Met my husband. Loved the work. Just really found it so intuitive but also had come from come from the arts, had come from more of a community background. And one of my bosses actually ended up going over to build Toronto to work for Lauren Braithwaite, who was CEO at the time, and, and Blake Hutchinson, who was chair of Build Toronto at the time, and asked me to come join him. They wanted some like really hardcore real estate talent inside this city corporation that was working on what they called surplus lands to really provide dividend into the city it was... Mayor Ford at the time. It was about putting dollars back into the. So There's a whole bunch of schools and. It was yeah utility excess utility land. Yeah, not necessarily old schools that was dealt with with a with a different agency, but for us it was parking lots. It was land that was purchased for roadways that wasn't used. It was random pieces of property. The city. I mean, it's unbelievable. The city owns. 8,000 pieces that they own and control in the 416. I mean, back in 2017 or 2016, it was valued at 27, tax assessed valued at 27 billion. So today I have no idea, but incredible land bank. And I had gone from working for Mitch Goldhar, which was absolutely incredible. I was in a leadership rotation program where you worked six months in development planning and six months in acquisitions. And you just worked your way through the company, engineering and construction and finance. And just felt like I had built this whole knowledge base. It was intuitive and I wanted to stay in the industry, but I kind of got tired of building shopping centers in London and then Midland and then (laughs) Niagara. And I'm so thankful for having the Walmart experience and having that training but I lived in downtown Toronto. I wanted to employ my skill set where I lived. And so when the call came to move over, I didn't even really think about the fact that it was the public sector. It was more just, I want to do good where I work. I want to use this thing that I love, that I've realized that I love. And so let's try it out. And that over a decade ago and just no looking back from that. So Yeah, I guess uh, if, if you're working on 
retail plazas with 20% site coverage, giant parking lots, Walmart being 80% of the rent roll over and over, that would not bear a close resemblance to anything you would uh, experience walking in downtown Toronto because that's not the kind of real estate that we're, uh, we're building uh, in Toronto. It's, but an incredible, incredible foundation, right? Income property, hardcore tenancy. For profit. For profit. Delivery matters. Detail matters. Having to walk into those family meetings and be on point. Working for Mitch, where you had to know whatever detail about whatever question he was going to ask. And then, you know, I met my husband. My husband worked there for many, 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 many years after that. So just that mentality, being in that mentality and keeping that mentality around me, I think really served me as I came into the public sector because we deliberately built a team that came from those type of backgrounds, but had the perspective of it's also the place where we live. Yeah. And so that means something. And what does that mean? And where, what kind of city do we want to build for ourselves while still being able to deliver a bottom line? So you are now 10 years now at your current establishment, but it wasn't called Create Teal when you started. So maybe just talk through the last 10 years and kind sure. of build the emphasis of what we are, what you're working on today or what you're working in today. Yeah. And so there was multiple real estate corporations at the city of Toronto, the Toronto Portland's company, Bill Toronto, who we did, we did the excess lands. There was also, you know, 14, I think, different divisions and agencies that touched real estate. The librarians were making real estate decisions. The police were making real estate decisions. The firefighters were making real estate decisions. I mean, these are not people trained in real estate. They didn't come with this professional background, but there was this massive land holdings that the city had. And they started to realize that, oh my gosh, we need to actually manage this with some strategy. We need to think about real estate and in today's world and not, you know, sort of in the 60s, 70s, 80s when all this stuff was developed and just realize the opportunity that they had in front of them. And so I think it was actually Mayor Tory who put to out the concept of Creatio and this corporation. And so our role at Creatio, we're about a 70-person organization. Our CEO was Vic Gupta. Um, so comes from the political background, really understands it, but also has tons of experience in real estate and is this perfect kind of blend between the two sides. But our job is to strategically manage those assets. And so when we're thinking about what the future needs of the city are from all of those different operating divisions, how best to do that. So if the library needs a new location, are we building a single story library and a piece of real estate in Toronto? No. What else can we do? Who else can co-locate? What is the most efficient use of land? you look around, if you just, when you leave and you're on your way home or you're on your drive, you'll notice so many pockets where you have these single use assets in the city that are owned by the city. And so our job is to make sure that that doesn't happen and leverage those to not only meet the, the operational needs of the city, but also think about the policy objectives of the city, the financial objectives of the city, and make sure that we're contributing across the board through real estate. What's some of the weirder assets owned by the city? Because you oh, mentioned uh, 8,000 separate properties. There's got to be some strange yeah, and stuff. Libraries in the mix. And, and fire stations and police stations, like that easy is top of the mind. But what else? Yeah, there must be I mean, dungeons that we're not aware of, right? <laughs> There's a building called the Destructor at Front and Bathurst. It was an old incinerator that we're, we're under contract with TAS on, and they're going to do some amazing city building on. Proudly financed by First National. Thank there you. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Yay, Maz. Okay. There are so many land leases actually controlled by the city, the Sheraton Center, you know, the hotel down on 11 Bay, up at Tubler East. Like there's just, I mean, 
asset after asset that you think is privately held up at Young and Eglinton. And really, these things are operating on land lease owned and controlled by the city of Toronto. Subway system, subway stations? Subway stations are in the purview. I mean, there's just so many. There's so many. Every block. And then I like, guess, I mean, even things like the, um, like I, I, I live near the Five Points, which is that Kipling, Dundas. S- six uh, Points. Six Points, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. He doesn't live there that long. No, no. <laughs> no, Six Points, we're building the new Etobicoke Civic Center. We have seven right. blocks there, a park, right. the Civic Center, five I mean, you blocks unlocked, that will be You unlocked a whole bunch of value, just, just rechain. Now, just for those that don't know, in the west end of, of Etobicoke, near the 427, Kipling, Dundas, and Blue are all intersected. Six points. That makes sense because there's six different roads. And they had all sorts of roundabouts and turnways and oh, things. Gordian nod. Yeah, it was nuts. And and so by just basically creating a regular intersection, you unlocked... Housing blocks. Yeah, blocks and blocks of land that is now going to be used for probably thousands of units that, exactly. you, that you can create there. So. I guess that's the type of thing that that comes across uh, your desk. Uh, absolutely, we we own actually most of the land that Crito works on is actually titled to the city of Toronto, but we actually own ourselves as an organization about four hundred acres down in the port as well. And so, you know, the Portlands really is the next frontier of Toronto, and uh, we're super excited about where that's going to take us. We have film studios. I mean, there's just you name it, and it's in the portfolio. Two hundred projects on the books, about hundred of them are active, and so there's just a tremendous amount of activity. How do you prioritize that activity? Yeah. Where do you go? Like if you had to, someone said, okay, go back to your desk after you're done here with this recording. You know, like what was the thing that you're pushing forward the fastest or the hardest or that has the most importance to the city or, and then balancing all of the different pressures. Those are the two, I mean, those are the two hardest questions I think that we deal with. You hit them right on the head at the top here. The political pressures are real. We are an agency of the city of Toronto that is controlled by council elected officials. And so the political narrative does drive a lot of our our work. We think about opportunity in the same way that a private company would too, right? Is the market mechanism, our business model, maybe I should touch on that before we kind of get into that because I think it is helpful to understand we don't do a ton of our own construction or build out. A lot of, if it's an institutional building, yes. And there's a division actually inside the city of Toronto that will partner with a real estate department inside the city of Toronto that will carry that stuff out if we're building the new Atopic Civic Center or there's a library or we're renovating an office building or something like that. There's, a, there's actually a division that thinks about that and, and works through that. CreTO's job is more on the strategy side and so, and, and the development side. And so that means that we're, preparing land, we're de-risking land, we're trying to meet some sort of policy objectives, integrating some city uses or whatever it happens to be, and then really trying to partner with the private sector. And so bringing opportunities to market that haven't been available because it's public land, but also ensuring that those opportunities not only have the opportunity for people to make money so they participate, but also do good in terms of what are those policy objectives. And so because that is our business model and our structure, if it's not right, if the timing isn't right, the market isn't right, that helps us to prioritize. If there's certain deliverables or objectives we want to get to, you know, we work through those. So is it we want to do some sort of transaction on a land lease and there's an option that comes up in eight years? Okay, we know when we have to start or where we might want to go. If we're trying to do a housing transaction and we know that it's really important in this case that we zone it and that we kind of remove all of that risk from the table, you know, those are the kind of questions that we'll talk to ourselves about. On the second part of the question of how do we balance 
it is incredibly difficult because you're dealing with a set of competing policy objectives, right? Everything at the end of the day hits the bottom line. We have a phenomenal finance team. We underwrite everything really rigorously. We're not taking anything out that isn't actually doable or financeable or saleable. And so when you layer on those requirements, you know, you deplete your residual land value. And that's okay because you know our objective is many fold. But sometimes we do have to make that harder decision about are we going to push net zero or are we going to do a little bit more affordable housing? And how that decision is made is, you know, it, it changes constantly because there is those different sort of dynamics that go on. We also have the benefit of great advice from a board of independent directors. There's some councillor members on there as well. And we work with the city leadership and the political leadership really, really closely. When you're looking at uh, you know, your next asset to focus on, you know, ultimately it was purchased originally for a reason that was going to benefit the city. Is there ever a fear that maybe you shouldn't sell it that might be needed in the future, even though yeah. obviously, you know, city requirements change over time? Is there ever uh, thoughts about that? Yeah, it is. It is a great question. And it also is a political question. And it, it is driven by, I think, the politics of the day. In the Build Toronto days, we were much more into going right into joint ventures. Ten York, Tridel's, you know, triangle project. That was ours. They came in. Previously a car impound lot. Is that car the impound yeah. lot. You got yeah. it. Garrison Point, we partnered with Diamond Corp, brought in Bentall. You know, like we were really into that. Lauren Braithwaite obviously had that experience and background. And so that was something he was driving. And we wanted to do just a lot of transactions. We had at that point in time, an objective of returning a $25 million dividend annually to the city that they were counting on and they needed us to do. And so we needed those transactions. We needed to close. We needed to move on with it. As times have evolved and the political winds have evolved, We've become more of a city building organization. We focus more on those policy objectives. We focus inordinately on affordable housing. We focus on climate change. We focus on economic development. We just did a, a deal for a film studio down in, in the Portlands. And so we do worry about what is the long-term picture. And, and right now, I would say the politics is driving us to long-term leases. And so our housing portfolio is all on 99-year land leases. But, you know, that that can change in the future as well. So you just, you just rammed off a bunch of, you know, positive social outcomes, plus the dividend payable to the city. Is that, would that be your metrics of success with those kind of categories? Or what else do you, what kind of, you know, significant benchmarks when you're looking back in the, you know, at the end of the year? Yeah, absolutely. I think those are the benchmarks. We look at, okay, what are those outcomes in terms of policy objectives that we just talked about? as well as my team, our development team, we also are, are focusing on how quickly are we, are we moving through process? You know, are we able to get through zonings? Are we able to meet our timelines? Are we able to be accurate in our underwriting assumptions? Are deals going the way we thought we would go? So those are probably internal metrics that we would look at, but externally we're talking about, you know, how much good are we doing with this public land and how much are we contributing back to the city both from a global economic perspective, a tax-based perspective, and then, you know, dollars. Let's do, let's do a case study. So the city's got some land that is prime a region for development, let's say a high-density neighborhood. So you're, you know, you're, they're thinking something highest and best used has some scale to it. 
is that, that presumably that's that kind of scenario occurs regularly it, for you? It, it actually occurs. What the way that we think about it, because if you think about like eight thousand pieces of property, yeah, I mean, well, that's like, what how I'm do you wrap my head around? Just like, yeah. So we have a team actually, a wonderful gentleman, colleague of mine, Ashmeet Ali, who runs a team who is our sort of strategic portfolio asset manager, and his team kind of controls that database, and so. What typically will happen is we'll say, okay, we want to, we have a portfolio strategy. So the city pre-COVID said, we need to modernize our office space, actually. The amount that we need to invest in Etobicoke, the current Etobicoke Civic Center doesn't really make sense. We're doing this investment over at Six Points. Let's build a new office. Let's up our standards so we're normal person per square foot office standards from where they were. Let's introduce a hybrid model because a lot of the times we don't need a desk for you know the health worker who's out at restaurants making sure people are passing their checks or the MLS inspector who is whoever or the parks are you know like let's actually just get it into today's standard we're going to save tens of millions on operating a year we're going to be able to dispose of a bunch of assets and it's going to be net positive for everyone new space savings, new buildings, let's go. So in that case, we're looking at those office assets and saying, okay, what are we leasing? We don't need to. We're, you know, we're working with our colleagues at the city of Toronto who actually deal with the operating assets saying, okay, they're going to come up with what, you know, they deal with that corporate real estate. They're going to tell us what they need. And then we're going to go back into that portfolio and really just like scrub the portfolio and make sure that we've pulled it all out. So that we call the modern TO portfolio. We actually have something coming to market that came out of this modern TO portfolio in October this year, 2022. It'll be 610 Bay, which is the old Greyhound bus terminal Mm -hmm. and 130 Elizabeth. And so there's a great opportunity used to be office not needed through this conversion that we're doing. We're just going to put it out there in the market. We're going to have some city building requirements, which we can talk about if you guys like. That's going to help us fund the build out of the thing that we're doing. And so there's connection, right? On the housing portfolio, council said, there's this policy document. We need to hit 10,000 affordable rental units on city-owned land, create TO, go find the land. And so then as we look through the portfolio, we're saying, okay, what works in the OP? what's transit-oriented, what likely has servicing, you know, what's the right scale for high density. And then it helps us weed down our decision-making points. And that's really, we never kind of say, okay, oh, there's a piece of property. Let's develop. I mean, sometimes, yeah. There's a piece of property. Let's but develop. But I would say like Allen East. If all, that's all been done. That's the low-hanging well, fruit. I mean, and been. there's still some of it. Like Allen East, we have 70 acres up next to Northcrest Lands, right? We've been working on that for 10 years, but we've been waiting for that Bombardier a flight path to be lifted. And so there's a great example of prioritization. Okay, we know this is something we need to work on. There's active work going on in the regulatory space. We need to be there. We need to participate, protect our value, always protect our value. Just because it's city land doesn't mean it doesn't have value. We're in there just like anyone else fighting, but it's not ready to activate today. Right. Okay. Okay. So, okay, good. I got some meat to chew on here (laughs) now. Okay. (laughs) Thank you for that. Okay. Okay. So let's use the Greyhound bus terminal. So for, those, sure. for, for non-Toronto residents, that's, you said 610 Bay, which is basically Bay and Dundas. Bay and Dundas. So if you couldn't Primo really... You site. couldn't get more <laughs> center of the downtown. If you use kind of blue in the waterfront, Dundas is kind of right in the halfway mark. So it's literally the middle of the downtown core. It's a, it's a full city block too, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So you own that land. You're not just putting up for sale and selling it to the highest bidder and walking away. No. So let's which, just which talk, would generate a big number if which, you did right. that. Right. Yeah. You take that money and go and you can build something else. No, no, you want you want to control a little bit of what happens on that land, right? And and let's just maybe talk through. So you've got not necessarily policy forces dictating what you what you build on a that. A little bit of that. A little bit of that. But yeah. also just 
community responsibility to make sure that something that gets built there isn't just this 70-story ugly condo tower. You want something that's useful for the community at large, whether it contains a school, a library, whatever, right? And so maybe just talk through what that looks like a little bit. And so, hypothetically, like what we would do is we would understand, okay, what are the policy drivers that are important? And so we know as a public institution, it's just not going to be acceptable to not deliver affordable. I mean, affordable housing is something that we have to do as governments and all governments have gone there, right? Provincial government has gone there. Federal government's gone there. The city's gone there in a big way. And so we know that sort of like table stakes in our underwriting. We know that. We have this beautiful heritage asset. And so that's a priority. What do we do with it? And when we look at both built form and we look at performa, we try to balance, okay, you know, we know that there's something really great from a city building perspective that come here. Let's not have a lot of expectations, you know, what that might mean in the turnaround or the delivery. We also know that we have climate objectives and the city has a ton of, like, you know, they have accessibility policy, they have climate policy, they have housing policy, they have family unit policy, like they have all this. We have to be the leaders and set that example. And so we build all that into, we always do test plans. If we're zoning it, we're doing full zoning sets. We always make sure that like all of those things can work. And then we set the kind of budgets based on what we see in our own work. And if we think someone's pushing us to go net zero and there just isn't enough to do it, Meaning like selling the land for negative dollars at some yeah, point. Because like, you just can't make a, you can't you know, make it work in a private environment. Exactly. Like I'll just have a very honest conversation and just really set that understanding of like, if we want someone to transact on this and we actually want it to happen, this is the expectation. And we have to be close enough to the market to understand that. And we have to be close enough to the bureaucracy and the politics to understand what those non-negotiables are. And somewhere in the middle, there is always a solution. You know, and so it may not be 50% affordable housing, but it's going to be 30 or right. whatever number. Yeah. Are you still trying to sell that land for market or are you understanding that you're almost working backwards? Here's what we want built on it based on all of our policy objectives. So, you know, X plus Y equals the return you're going to get. Therefore, the land value is, is Z. Yeah. And that's the only way. So, yeah, market might be, you know, 30 million, but I, if I sell it for 10, then my, my purchaser, my partner can actually build it and make the yield that would meet what they would build it at market. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's not complicated math, right? Really, Real it's not. But it's it, just, it seems to get muddled, I guess, yeah, when you're talking I about think, public-private relationships. I think people think it's more complicated than it is, right? Like, what does it cost to build? What can you make? What does it cost to build it? And yeah. what's left? Like, yeah. I, I, I always tell my team, right, that our planners are, are come from other places. Like, this is the foundation of our work. We have to do really great public realm. We have to do really great buildings. We take design very seriously. We take climate seriously. We take affordable housing seriously. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't work in that performa, it's just a pretend project. And so we start with that perspective. But the city then has the understanding that they may be selling it way below market in order to achieve... The city's, or that's the cost of the social outcomes. Right. That's, that's for, they're, yeah. they're, 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 the city they're um, the subsidizing it yeah, in theory, right? The city isn't starting from like, oh, okay, highest and best use. The city is starting from, okay, what are our policy objectives? Right. And then how do we push those policy objectives? And our job as CreateTO is to tell them with professional advice of like, this is what we think you can net, right? Like this is what we think you can, can generate from this portfolio if you want all these things. If you don't want all these things and you prefer that check or you'd rather have it this way, these are the decisions you have to make. 
So the policy guidelines would be the priority, but your job is to, I guess, optimize the return for the city under those parameters. Yeah, depend. each case is very different, right? On our affordable housing portfolio, we know that we're pushing for more affordable units, but we also know that we have to sustain the portfolio and pay the salaries and pay the consultants and get the zonings done and that costs something. And so all of this is in balance. When you're working on deals, have you run into any frustrations where you just couldn't make something work, you had a vision for it and just couldn't couldn't make it work? Like if we put something in the market and just didn't get a good response? Well, maybe or? not that far. When, when you're... That's we'll, never happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's your job. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. to be clear. I, we'll talk about the, the early stages and you see something, have a vision for it and... Well, that's got to be frustrating. Yeah, like, like, let me just add on to that. Like where you, you kind of, you get given the mandate and you have the piece of land and you know the policies. Okay, well, here's what's going to make the most amount of sense. It's this amount of affordability, including this amount of energy efficiency, this makes everybody happy here. And then yet it just dies on the vine unexplicably. I don't think anything, di- like nothing dies on the vine, but no one's ever going to be 100% happy, right? Yeah. The energy department's going to want to see you do more. The planning department's going to want to see you do more. The affordable housing office is going to, the housing secretary is going to want to see you do more. The local counselor is going to want more. Everybody's going to want theirs. It's just like any other developer or any other project. And our job is just to find that middle ground and make sure that we can actually get something off the ground. I saw somebody open a wedding speech once with the sign of a good compromise is when nobody's happy. Right. I guess that would be uh, similar. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like they're not happy in terms of they didn't get, you know, 100% of what they wanted, but I think they are happy that there's this engaged process, right? That they're getting more than they would otherwise, that we're setting, you know, I think a lot of our role is also to set precedent for the market. You know, Toronto and you know our industry, no one wants to be the first to do things. We get this great position. 505 Richmond, one of my sort of babies that I dreamt up a concept of a, you know, this incredibly complex mixed-use project of luxury condo, a YMCA, a food hall, and we put it into market and half the developers told us we're crazy and half of them said, this is amazing and look at it now and it beat every expectation. It's this beautiful thing. It's won Governor General's awards. And in that case, it's sort of just, we got to show how you can do this really interesting mixed-use thing and then you see people learning from that and not to sort of, you know, pat ourselves on the shoulder too much, but really like we can kind of take that risk a little bit more because we have the policy objectives behind us and allow that to be part of the way we think about return. And I guess I would say one more thing, which is it's a lot more complicated, right? Like at Smart Tenders, it was really easy to make a decision. It was super simple to make a decision. It was about dollars and it was about tenants and if you could figure that out, you're done and you go. With us, it's the complexity of the layered relationships and the layered objectives makes it, you just have to know more about everything that you're doing. Do you retain ownership? Like what's, let's talk about just sort of the capital stack to a certain degree. I mean, let's sure. use the Greyhound site as, as an easy example. So you're going to sell that. You were deciding to build some mixed use that has apartments. Just, I mean, I don't know what your actually plans are, but let's say you got some sort of cash flowing asset. Yeah. Are you staying in? At the equity side? Most of the time, no. Sometimes, yes. And what change, What drives that, that decision? It's making? just opportunistic for us if we think it's worth it for us to take that risk. If we think we can explain it to the multitude of shareholders, if it's it's really a case-by-case basis. And I would say like those are kind of the, the drivers. So, but, so for the most part though, you're just kind of setting the box and saying, okay, developer, here's the box. If you want this land, it's this price. Or you tell me, or is it still the market sets the price? Yeah. yeah, I mean, just like any other kind of land offering, it would. We typically will go out zoned, which is, I mean, a huge benefit, right? Because yeah. you kind of have that 
inside track to make sure it meets the zoning and get rid of that risk? Yeah. I mean, 610 Bay is not going to go out zoned, but... Uh, and 130 Elizabeth. But in that case, we, we will always make sure the counselor's on side. You right. know, you're not going, the planning department's on side. They've socialized the plans. You know, you can count on that density that you're bidding on. Why not zoned for that site? In that case, because we want, we also want to kind of let the market be a little bit more creative. You know, it's not necessarily, in our affordable housing program, we go out zoned because time to construction matters in terms of being able to drive those affordable housing units. And it's a rental product. On the condo stuff, I think we're less sensitive about it. Again, we kind of just look at each case and say, okay, does it add value? Does it not? Will we get rewarded? Will we not? Can we be precise or not? Right? Like if we can't, if there's lots of ways to kind of do something, then we may not take that step because we don't want to zone it and just have someone go back and rezone it. Like that's just not efficient. So... So it really, it's always case by case. So maybe just on a sort of a different vein, what are some of the more exciting projects that are in your pipeline that's kind of, you you, you mentioned you know, yeah. how proud you are of the Richmond Street development. Yeah. Greyhounds what, coming up. Greyhounds coming yeah. up. Greyhounds what else are you yeah. kind of some of the stuff that you're working oh, on that you goodness. think is really exciting? There's so many. There are so many. There's 65 like very active sites in the team that I manage. Only 65? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All of the housing sites are really super exciting. Like we have one at Don Mills and Eglinton that I'm really, really pumped over. It's both the southeast and, and southwest corners, just across the street from the Celestica site there. And we're doing on the west side an integrated elementary school right into the building. And it's you know, cool. 1,200 units, mixed tenure, a park, new roads. So when you say we're doing it, you're just... you're. We're, we own, like we own it, we zone it. We're going to put it out for land lease. Someone's going to own the structure. Right. Um, but we're like putting that project out. Well, integrating the school is critical. I mean, uh, around Toronto, there's numerous development sites with signs on the front lawn saying, you know, if you live here, you will not qualify for the local school district. So that, you know, that's an issue. And so it's, it's a beautiful yeah. concept to build it right in. I mean, in that case, if you guys remember back down in Thorncliffe during COVID, the kids that were getting crowded into that elementary school, this is a direct response, right? We are doing a project and we're able to work with our colleagues in the public sector to say, okay, this is something that we can help you solve and let's do this together. And sorting out how it actually gets executed is extremely complicated, obviously. But those are the type of challenges we get to take on and have the efficiency of the private sector come in and help us as well. You know, when we, many of our guests, we've talked about it, how your expertise and your, your, where you sit in our community is unique compared to many of the people that we get a chance to talk to. So a lot of the brokers and the developers and even the lenders in our world, when we talk about, you know, supply and demand and affordability, particularly just the rental world, got an affordability challenge throughout the country, throughout the country, of course, but I mean, obviously your create too, so we'll focus on Toronto. Even just in the last month, rents are going up hundreds of dollars a month. We're just, we're having some real challenges as affordability and it's getting worse and it will continue to get worse. Driven by interest rates. Sorry, we don't control it, but of course it's part of our world. Yeah, I mean, you must be sitting there and looking at all this land, wanting to provide more more density. A lot of the times, conversations we have, the, the, the answer is if only the city would allow us to build more density as of right zoning along major thoroughfares. Like there's a whole bunch of things that there are zoning restrictions that, you know, a lot of our community would say, if only we had this freedom to go and do these things, we could really drive a ton of supply to help with the affordability challenge. Where you sit, 
what are some of the things that go through your mind as you're trying? Because I, I, I mean, sitting here talking to you, you clearly think like a developer, like a like a private owner. But of course, you're working on the on the public side. Yeah. How do you manage that balance? I you mean, know, like internally? we're we're the receiver of the planning documents the same way as as any sort of developer is. And so, what we try to make sure is that public lands aren't considered in a different vein than private lands. So they must be as dense. They must be as productive because it's the challenge that we are collectively trying to solve. Um, so we do. We try to push densities. You will see us go there. If you look at um, some of our projects, we actually will up density as we go through zoning. If we're testing that and it's going okay, yeah. you know, we'll go that way. It's, it's sort of a different approach than a private developer. The other thing that we do is when we don't go out zoned, we limit the developer's ability to appeal to LPAD or OLAB or whatever it's called today, right? Like the OMB, we really do our best to make sure that we're maxed out on all of those things. And the planning department is a great partner understanding that we're working with CreateTO, that's not a possibility. And so we let's just go there. Let's just you know, and they're always worried about precedent and I don't blame them for that. And so we know that that's their mindset. And so we are very honest about if it's an economic problem, like if it's a problem in the performa, what we need to fix it. And we just, we have transparency built on a sort of a body of trust, right? And I think that developers have their job to do is build trust with that planning department. Yeah, of course. You know? And you've got city councilors on side too. Because I mean, we often hear about you know community planning meetings and NIMBYism being a, big, a major <laughs> our, obstacle, our, yeah, right? Our job is to get them on side. I would say, you know, that's not an easy job. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds tough. I was about to say <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> it's not an easy job. And, and they will have their own opinions. And sometimes what happens with us is like, a local counselor where you're working on a development project has an opinion about something. And then our board who has different counselors on them have a different opinion. And then what do you do, right? No different than a private board having an opinion different than a local counselor, but they're tough and they're tricky and our system, our system is built that way. So it, it inherently creates these problems. I'm wondering, if you really interesting. I'm going to start asking this question now, next time we talk to, to developers in Toronto about when they see a CreateTO uh, opportunity, what their thoughts are. And I, I suspect they think, hey, that's a good, a good engagement. Like, I know what I'm going to get. I know that I'm working with people that have the best intentions in mind. Are you experiencing that? Like, do you kind of have the same developers come back because they know that what they're getting into comes with a little bit more support, protection, you know, managed internal relationships? I mean, maybe just talk that through as your relationship being on the public side with the, with the private side. I mean, I think we get people come back and bid. We also get a lot of people who haven't worked with us before wanting to understand how they participate in these opportunities because they aren't lands that are readily available. We work with the industry's best, the best architects, the best brokerage teams, very close relationships with CMHC and, and not so much other financiers, but those that are required to kind of execute on our projects. And then I think people also understand that there's going to be an advocate, a broker. I sort of see myself and I see my team as being that team that can understand both perspectives. And that means that I'm working with at CreateTO the most incredible talent. Talent that actually has to understand the world of the developer, what matters, how they think, what is their value chain. And then be able to understand their colleagues at the city 
why they do what they do, what are they driving home and bring those things together. And so it takes this very sophisticated sort of perspective. And if you look at the talent that's actually come out of Creatio, come out of Build Toronto, come out of places like Waterfront Toronto or IO, you'll see their leaders across Toronto community housing, across the city. Lori Payne at Osmington Jarofsky over there came from TCHC. You know, we have Derek Goring at Northcrest came from IO and Waterfront Toronto. Tony Medeiros, who leading development at Dream, came from Waterfront Toronto. Renee Gomez, who is over leading development at Diamond Corp, came from Waterfront Toronto. Out of our own shop, we have people, you know, running things at Choice, running things across the industry. And you see these people come out of these jobs where they have to have that perspective of both public and private go back into the private sector and do really incredible and complex work because they gain the skill set of being able to see that like multi-sectoral lens and where solutions lie. And understand the importance of the relationship with the public side, which I think is, yeah. I think there'd be a lot of people that would start having conversations with you go, oh, geez, you talk and think just like I do. I, didn't, I wouldn't expect that. Because of the public sector, right? Because the public sector kind of has this, because, oh, they don't know what they're doing. Oh, right, they're always just roadblocking what we're trying to do. You right? get this red tape and you get this sort of, you know, inside the bureaucracy, do people, are they rewarded to make hard decisions? I don't think so, right? So it's not structurally set up. But, you know, we have this privilege at Creatio to sit outside of that and really help broker through those processes. Yeah, my big takeaway is you've got uh, all the, the stresses of a developer, plus political stress, plus the uh, the longer <laughs> list of uh, goals to achieve uh, adding a stress to it, plus 65 uh, projects on the go, you know, whereas your average developer might have two or three Right. So it's it's a lot, and and hats off to you for, uh, for making you. it work. Thank you. You Thank clearly you. enjoy it. I like the you say you kind of want. Yeah, it's easy to build retail plazas. I want to do yeah. something way more complicated. <laughs> yeah, nine billion dollar portfolio. That's, hey, hey, uh, walk we, in the park. we built a we built a retail shopping center at, at Build Toronto. It was seventy five Billy Bishop Way, fifty thousand square feet, about fifteen tenancies. I had the great privilege of doing the development approvals, leasing it, and selling it. Uh, which you would never get, I guess, on the private side, getting to do all the roles. And we made Manulife picked it up, which was a nice note of confidence that they liked what we negotiated and built and put a lot of money back into the city's hands, right? Like It's really great to get to know you, Salima. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. After show where Aaron and I discuss the episode that just took place. That was a that was a real highlight for me. I mean, we are, you know, we're at the apartment conference. We're doing a lot of interviews today. And not to detract from our other interviews. I, we They're all great. Them. Yeah, we encourage you to listen to them. Don't uh, skip them. But the really interesting thing for you and me, of course, is we haven't had anybody, I don't think, from the, the government side of the Infrastructure equation. Ontario. Infrastructure Ontario, yes. There you go. Tony Rossi. Tony Rossi. There you go. That was interesting because they are, you know, they are a, a big player in the market. You know, they have excellent real estate in the portfolio. I mean, I don't think I don't think we sold enough to people who are not from Toronto. What a prime spot that Greyhound site is. If you've ever been a tourist in the city and gone by Young and Dundas Square, it is, you know, a block or two away from there. The site is its own. It's like a, po- it's like a poor man's Times Square, but <laughs> yeah. it's still, you get this idea that it's right, heart. It could not be more geographically centered in the downtown core of, of the city. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And every parking lot around that was built out a long time ago. So there's, you have very few opportunities as a developer to pick up something comparable, you know, in your lifetime so that it will get a lot of attention. 
but yeah, no, they're, 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 they have come out with some fantastic sites over the last while. And it was interesting hearing her speak, talking about layering in all the concerns of a regular developer, plus the political, <laughs> the public consideration. It's, it's interesting. I have a major regret already. And that's that we didn't ask her about her timeframes. And I wish I knew the answer. And, I, and I'm sorry, Salima, if you're listening to this, that I, we didn't ask the question because I'd be very curious if being part of CreateTO and managing all of the different facets, but because of the importance to the city of what she's trying to do with city land and, and, and the, the importance of it, if there's a difference in the approval process or because it's so complicated and because she has to manage all of the different forces and get the zoning on board and, and all the different things, if there's a delay. Like, I'd be really curious what the... From the day someone said, hey, we're going to pivot this Greyhound terminal to the day that it actually gets to market, is it one year, meaning you know faster than the average two, three years that, this, yeah. that it typically takes? Or is it five years because <laughs> it's more complicated and takes longer? Is working with an insider kind of help? Yeah, no, that, that would have been a good question. That's, we'll never know. Slip through our hands. <laughs> we'll I'm sorry, answer. but I suspect it probably is slower. I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> but because, just due to considerations, I don't think that this is a condemnation of timelines. It's just with the the levels of consideration she was discussing. I mean, the stakeholders involved, uh, the list would be ten times longer than your average project. I, I, just, I just, the voice. I love. I mean, just because I mean, what was really encouraging, uh, for lack of a better word, is that you know she's she's a developer, right? Like she's she got mentored under you know one of the most successful companies as being smart centers and uh, you know so thinks like us you know has that sort of mentality of a developer who wants to get in get it built get it cash flowing get it stabilized get it financed get your yield managing your investors expectations all that stuff like that's the way that her 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 career started and she still thinks that way but now she's just got this extra layer and it was interesting I was in my mind I was imagining you know using this Greyhound site as an example out of the eight thousand properties that she has sort of under the the purview of Create TO, where this is an incredible site. Like any developer would love just have the opportunity, you know, blank slate to figure out what to build on this thing, which is effectively what she has. But then she's also got the, you know, I wouldn't say restrictions. They're just the the added benefits of having the city saying, well, no, but we need this, we need that. It's really, I mean, from a holistic helping the community, helping the citizens, like there's a real sort of great thing that she's doing. So she's got this blank slate. She knows she's got this affordability, this environmental sort of, whether it's, you know, carbon neutrality focus. Maybe there's a school, there's a library. Like what are the community needs for the individuals that live in that neighborhood? Some really like fantastic things that she's trying to incorporate into the design of this dirt. And I can imagine that she goes and she talks to the, whatever the groups are, and I'm, I'm ignorant to it, but you know, the, the group that's pushing for affordability and then talks to the group that's pushing for environmental, then the group that's pushing for whatever the, the community needs are. And she goes, okay, all right, I'll try. Goes and she does her market-oriented underwriting, just like any developer would. And I wonder if at some time she kind of turns around and goes, okay, to do this level of affordability and your level of environmental you know, carbon neutrality and to incorporate a school and a library and a fire station, I will have to pay a developer $20 million to take this land. It, like it, yesterday it literally talking comes about to yeah. a negative Residual land value, value. right? <laughs> and then I'm sure the city goes, ah, okay, well, hold on. Let's now let's... And so that's the situation she's in because she actually is almost like this internal representation of this is what the market would do with your desires, you know, Mr. or Mrs. City, you know, requirement, right? Like it's it's... I find it a very fascinating place that she sits in a, and a very, very important one. Like that was, you know, it comes across loud and clear. What she's doing 
for the city of Toronto, and I'm sure there are other people like her in, in other positions across the country and municipalities, just an absolutely critical part of our, our commercial real estate community. Well, yeah, there's got to be a sense of satisfaction of yeah, you're exactly. working on these landmark sites, you know, just these city-defining developments. And you had, you know, you were in it up to your elbows for years to, you know, help make it happen. It's got to be, it's got to be satisfying to work through that. The one that stuck with me, I don't think she mentioned what the eventual use would be. But if the destructor ends up being a condo site, I really hope they sell it under that name. They keep that as the condo <laughs> name building, the destructor. That's, you know, partly as a preservation of the history of the city and also because that's a very ominous. They story. must have something because, I mean, that's, uh, it was an old uh, pig slaughtering house, right? And the smell alone, like, it, it, I mean, I'm sure there are still some buildings down there that if you smelt the brick still has the stench <laughs> yeah, attached yeah. to them, right? So I don't know how you commemorate the smell that used to <laughs> yeah, exist as a result of that site. But, but yeah, I mean, it's amazing some of the stuff that she must get exposed to. Like, very, very cool. Being a born and raised Torontonian, I'm almost jealous. Like, I'd like to just, you know, spend a couple of days just job shadowing me. Like, what else do you have in yeah, this portfolio? Yeah. <laughs> that building that I drove, rode my bike by every day. Oh, yeah, okay. You could do something with that, right? And not, uh, of course, you know, to detract, you know, anything she worked on at, uh, at Smart Centers. But she did mention that, the kind of doing the, the successful formula, but the same formula over and over and again, maybe wasn't, you know, connecting with her at an emotional level. But she definitely seems passionate about what she does now. Yeah, no, just a really impressive conversation and fun, different than the conversations you and I typically have. So it was entertaining to, to kind of explore what she's doing for the city. Yeah, we do talk to a lot of just very traditional real estate people, which would make sense for the commercial real estate podcast. But that was, uh, yeah, that was a real treat. And I would love to catch up with her again at some point. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's a wrap on this one. Thanks to First National Power in the podcast. Thanks for everybody listening. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.